What's so special about Hero Bread's soft, fluffy, and delicious breads, buns, and tortillas? These ultra-low net-carb baked goods contain zero sugar, fewer calories, and more protein than the leading brands and are high in fiber to support gut health. Shop now at Hero.co. It's time for another season of The Palmetto Porch, an original podcast from Discover South Carolina. I'm Devin Whitmire. Join me as I get to the heart of what makes South Carolina such a great place to visit by speaking to the locals who make it so special. Premiering December 5th, find The Palmetto Porch wherever you get your podcasts. And for more information about our show, visit scpalmettoporch.com. Hi, this is Stuart, the host of uh, Bricklix.com podcast. It's just a quick note to let you know that um, this interview with Julian Temple, director of Absolute Beginners, to celebrate its 30-year Blu-ray, Blu-ray release, um, was recorded um, Skype to mobile phone. While most of it is perfectly fine, there's a little bit that gets a bit computerised and disconnects. Unfortunately... That was also the bit where he was talking about David Bowie. So I apologise for the disconnect during that segment. But apart from that, everything else about this podcast should listen fine from your point of view. Thank you for listening. Over to the interview. Welcome to another BritFlix.com podcast. Today I've got with, my name's Stuart Wright, and today I've got with me Julian Temple. Hello, Julian. Hello there. Uh, we've, we've come together for the podcast to celebrate the 30th anniversary of Absolute Beginners and a, DVD, a Blu-ray DVD release, release that now includes a, uh, a um, Absolute Ambition, a documentary about the making of Absolute Beginners. Um, so the, the obvious question to start with is, it, for me, is as as someone that was the sort of creator of this film, and yeah. we're now thirty years on. How how yeah. does it feel as as the creator of something to be celebrating an anniversary like thirty years since you did something? Well, it's um, it's something I never expected to happen. You know, I thought the film was going to be um, burnt or written out of history in some way when we finished it it felt you know um it felt like a kind of disaster zone um and you know for many years no one uh really really looked at it because it got such big slagging off so it, it's it's a kind of miracle that it's still around and um being reassessed now which is is nice to see really um but, you know, 30 years, you realise uh, that's a lot of uh, water under the bridge, isn't it? Also, there's that aspect of, like, Jesus, was it that long ago? <laughs> yeah, no, cause I was, I was talking talk to my wife about it, and she she actually went to see it at the cinema when it came out, and she loved it. So she was right. obviously the, the booking of that trend. Um... Yeah, and to be fair, it, it went down well in Europe and in America. You know, I got some great reviews in America, and... and 
as a result of the re- the response here, I had to leave the country basically if I wanted to continue to work. So I did a kind of exile thing in America. Um, and one of the first things that happened to me is I got this phone call with a squeaky little voice saying, hey, it's Michael here. <laughs> I was like, Michael who? And it was Michael Jackson saying, oh, uh, we've got a print of Absolute Beginners. Janet and I have learned every step. Would you like to come over and watch us bounce it out for you? You know, so <laughs> I had this bizarre thing of Michael and Janet Jackson dancing out in the moves beneath their private screen in their Joe Jackson's house. <laughs> it's insane. So they like it. Um, anyway, uh, that's by the by, really. Well, watch, watching it now in 2016, as I've had the pleasure of doing, it, 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 it's like yeah. you, you say War on the Bridge, but it's it's like in a way, I mean, like all like all art that's sort of jars with people, time has been kind to it in the sense of there hasn't been like a glut of other musicals that have gone, yeah, we were right about Absolute Beginners. You go, actually, yeah. there was, there's nothing else been like it since in terms of British cinema. So yeah. it stands alone now, doesn't it? And and um... it does yeah. I mean, it was it was an attempt to. Um, well, McInnes in his in his opening page of the book um, talks about Shaftesbury Avenue on a summer evening in 1958, and people floating down, you know, teenagers floating through the crowds like gondolas, and and he says one day they'll make a musical about this, and and that was the. The kind of trigger for me because I um, it was kind of the least hit genre you could embark on at that time. Yeah, yeah. Um, and I and I wanted to subvert it in a way by making it more of a socially conscious, trying to get social cultural sort of themes into the musical was the ambition of it, you know, um, which. I think it's an interesting, an interesting concept still, which gives it a slightly modern aspect. I think you know a lot of this Brexit stuff is um, stirring up some of the shit that was around at the time of Absolute Beginners. You know, the racism, fear of immigrants, um, the kind of austerity that people were just coming out of at the beginning of you know division between old and young, which we've seen in this referendum. Um, you know, so I, I think it's quite a timely um, moment to, to look at it in terms of its themes as well as its colours and its movement and all that. Yeah, no, I think, I think you know, it's safe to say that the Stephen Burkhoff character is, is, is fairly prescient right now. Yeah, Farage, Monsieur Farage and his... But also, but also, there was a line in there that really stuck stuck out for me in the in the in the uh, the Ray Davis sequence, where yeah. he's telling Colin that um, you know it was no good being a young person in 1932, you know, as if to emphasise what a great time it is to be young. I'm very yeah. jealous of him. Yeah. I'm not sure. <laughs> I'm not sure that uh, my dad's going to turn around to me and go, Stuart, what a great time to be young. <laughs> Well, I don't think he is now, is he? In, no, that's uh, what I'm 19, saying, yeah. Uh, 2016, you know, my son is <clears throat> the age of the guy in the film, but it's mm. it's not as good as it was then, I think, to be that no. age. Because in, in a sense, yeah. the kind of 1958 was still a sense of stoicism hanging around from, from a world war, so a lot of people still scarred both physically and mentally, whereas what we're yeah. talking about in 2016 is a political ideology. That scarred people, not not physical yeah. war. Yeah. 
No, I think that's interesting, yeah. I was also interested in so, yeah, you... you know, it's a good time to revisit it in a way. You know? mm. um, but but also, there's a, in terms of revisiting it, when you look at it through, like, trying to look at it through an 80s gauze, that you, yeah. you, you, you sort of gave it um, a kind of glorious sheen. You know, it had that optimism that I think... There was there was something coming out in the eighties because obviously the nineties ended up being quite a joyous period, and obviously that was born out of an optimism that was brewing in the eighties. I imagine if if you know if I can if I can draw those dotted lines between the two because you were making that you made that second half of it's eighty six, isn't it? So it's the sort of coming into the second half of the eighties after the sort of horrible early eighties period. Yeah, uh, it was in the kind of midpoint of the decade, mm. really, but. Uh, yeah, like every decade, you know, there was uh, there was a downside to the eighties at that time, you know, uh, and with the whole Thatcher thing going on, and mm. uh, the, the beginning to try and dismantle the sixties um, in terms of a you know way of thinking about who you are, kind of thing. I think, but yeah, no, I mean, at the end of the eighties was a, was a better time. I think there was a moment where. Um, it was good to be young in 88 or 89, kind of mm. No, it was, I can, t- I can assure you. It was brilliant. <laughs> yeah. Not as good as 60 fucking 8. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, you, know the Tony, anyway. you know the Tony Wilson theory, don't you, about, about the 13-year cycles? Which I is don't kind of, know that which theory, is kind of, I mean, he always sort of... It, it was his theory. It's not grounded in any truth. But he sort of got, he sort of says 1950, 1963, 1976, 1989. When it stops there, unfortunately, because I don't think you can claim much for 2002. Yeah, yeah, that's interesting. I mean, you know, everyone has their own theories of when the sixties began. I'd put it a bit earlier than that, but um, yeah, you know, that, it, that seems to make some kind of sense to me. You, but, you meant, but you not necessarily the exact. Years, no, no, no. I mean, the Christ, you couldn't. It's only a, you could never prove it. Um, but but thinking about your your your, um, your 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 sort of recent history before doing that sort of work, and you mentioned that sort of musicals were hardly the most cutting edge thing to be doing. And and given your work you've done with the Sex Pistols prior yeah. to that, how, how how did you not feel too cool for school to be doing something like a musical, having had that grounding in working with people like the Sex Pistols? Well, I, I wanted to, I, you know, I thought it was good to do something you weren't expected to do. Uh, well, I paid the price for that, but, um, you know, I did feel, I, I, I'd obviously been one of the people who was involved in the early music video thing in London, and then mm. MTV launched off the back of that, really. So I'd done a lot of um, work in a short period of time with bands as varied as, you know, I don't know, the Sex Pistols, but also Texas Midnight Runners and Culture Club and Stones and um, Bowie and Kinks. And, you know, so I got into um, ways of working with images and music that I wanted to explore in a in a film, you know, rather mm. than just in a three-minute video. So um I wanted to kind of meld that together with a social critique of um, the whole notion of teenage and uh, the emergence of youth cultures in England in the 50s, um, which is an exciting time for me to explore because it was just before my time. I mean, I was alive, but I was, you know, 
I got into things around 64, you know, okay. so I, this was just kind of out of reach for me. So it was quite a magical thing to excavate it and get lost in all the visuals of it and the colors and the, and the music. The jazz thing was quite a big. There was an interesting revival of jazz, interest in jazz in like 84, 85 in London. So, um, you know, it did coincide with that as well. It was interesting to me. And working with Gil Evans was one of the high points of the few high points of the whole experience, really. You know? Well, I, th I think the 50s is interesting because although most youth cultures are easily defined by their music, the 50s has the Teddy Boys, which in many senses, although they're lumped in with rock and roll, were, were born out of a youth rebellion. rock and roll. They predate a musical trend, don't they? They were, they were kind of a big influence yeah. of the American GIs and things like that that had been, been here. And yeah, they were they were in the palais, you know, dancing to big bands initially, yeah. and jiving and listening to kind of souped-up um, uh, jump music, you know, kind of early R&B was part of it too, you know. In the in the uh, in the documentary that that you get with with the film, you talk about um, sort of the want to provoke and entertain. How, yeah. how, do you, how do you square those two in a kind of in in in, in this film as you see it? Uh, how do they do it in this? I mean, I think you know, entertainment is to do with provocation. Okay. Uh, you know, the best entertainment provokes, um, and, and laughter is a. Uh, is a sign that people are understanding what you're saying, you know. Um, but in this film, I was, um, you know, I was trying to deliver a spectacle, a kind of grand 70 mil riot of color and um, sound. But I was also trying to <clears throat> explore particularly the, the kind of notion that Soho and Notting Hill at that time were two kind of islands <clears throat> of difference in a, a very white bread, Victorian moral miasma that the rest of London still was in, you know, mm. and um, explore, explore the effect of immigration, you know, the presence of black Caribbean people coming to Notting Hill and, and, and the, you know, the traditional um, mix of all different cultures in Soho, you know, um, from intellectuals to hookers and Italians and <clears throat> Greeks and, you know, all the things that made Soho so different from other parts of London at the time, you know, which London is now like those two places to an extent, or has been, and now they're kind of driving it all out again. Yeah, because it's, it's, in, it's interesting how, because Colin McInnes' book, Absolute Beginners, which is obviously where you take, you take the film from, um, is, yeah. is, is written in 1958, isn't it? Literally the time the film's set in, and the, obviously the book. Yeah. Which, which is interesting, because yeah. that's a good ten years before the horrible rivers of blood speech by the likes, you know, Enoch Powell, and that kind of popularist rise of a kind of racist right-wing, a potentially racist right-wing agenda. So clearly, from Colin's, Colin's point of view, he was already seeing the green shoots of this already happen, given what's reflected in the film, presumably in the book. Yeah. Well, you also have to remember the Notting Hill race riots of 58 as well. Uh, you know, I think that was the, probably the at the core of the uh, attempt to provoke and entertain was to make a musical number out of that race riot, you mm. know, um, 
which Joe Dan has scored. Um, I mean, which is, that, you know, uh, is a provocative thing to do, but I, you know, that's the kind of thing I do like. There's something quite funky about that. <laughs> no, I must, I must admit, uh, Julian, I'd, I'd forgotten how confrontational it was in the final act. You know, because you, you, yeah. you remember the kind of glossy, you know, love-struck teenage and teenage girl and how life gets in the way of everything. But actually, what you don't see coming and then what it becomes the finale is much darker than just simply boy meets girl. Yeah. <clears throat> yeah. I mean, in, in essence, it's a very thin story, the book. You know, it's not a... Um, deeply you know psychological exploration of character it's it's an observation mm. almost journalistic observation of london in that summer and it's brilliant and beautiful in that way but i thought that you know the musical form is not one to explore in the way that a psychological thriller or you know other drama dramas explore character but i did think that it was suited to that for that reason, you know that that type of adaption obviously wouldn't work with a with a, with a different kind of book, you know. And I think that is that is the biggest criticism I have of the film is that you know we don't really explore the characters enough, or the actors weren't um, uh, de- no, deep enough to. To do it, I, yeah. I wanted Tim Roth to do it actually, but they said he was too ugly. <laughs> yeah, 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 so to say that a documentary, it's sort of the the, the so it's the same old, same old, isn't it? All with 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 making films is that sellable, yeah. sellable becomes the only thing in some senses. Um, yeah, which... there was a lot of pressure on us as well because you know we were young kids on the block and. Um, mm. They didn't trust us an inch, probably quite rightly. But, um... <laughs> <laughs> can, can you remember, looking back, can you remember the, the sort of difference from you as a filmmaker going from, because obviously making music videos is an ex, and then making a musical, you could argue there's, a, there's, a, there's an extension of, of the form. So how did you find that leap from, from, the, from the music video sort of production to a feature film production with music in it? Well, you know, a feature film of that scale is a major psychological thing to embark on. You've got 100 people, uh, you know, all asking the same or different questions at the same time. And um, just the logistics of it and the planning of it was a massive thing. And there was a lot of pressure building through it because we... I, you know, I blame ourselves really for um, hyping it at the beginning because we couldn't get it financed. So we started a kind of thing of trying to get the face to write about it, NME, people like that. So we could go into these meetings and say to the money guys, you know, look, here's the face cover or here's the whatever. They're talking about this book. Everyone's yeah, excited. Yeah. We've got to make a film, you know. <clears throat> but that did kind of open a Pandora's box that meant by the stage the film had been shot, people were reviewing it without having seen it, and um, uh, there's a crazy Julie Birchall review of it, um, uh, for example, but um, also it became a kind of national obsession that these kids were destroying the film industry. Um, You know, and ironically, the other two films that Goldcrest made probably lost 
you know, 25 times as much money together than, than we did. Um, we went over a million, um, mm. but they went over hugely, particularly revolution. Uh, but because we were the, the upstart kids, the, we got the spanking and we got, you know, it was quite fun being blamed for the, in some ways, in retrospect, it seems more fun probably than it was at the time to be blamed for bringing down the British film industry. But it, at the time, it was a nightmare, really. No, uh, and I, I had to get out. Of, I had to get out of town. We were fired immediately. The shoot finished. We were taken off the film, and I didn't really get to edit it. Um, oh, really? I don't. Yeah, they put three editors on. One took the middle. One took the beginning. One took the end. And they didn't talk to each other, so they. They cut from September to December and made no sense of it at all. And um, finally, these guys called us back, you know. And, and if I tried to go near the recording room, it was like you're locked out, you know. Um, wow. In the end, they... Sorry? I said, I said we've wow. Gone over, we, we, uh, yeah. Um, but in the end, they said, you've got two weeks over Christmas, see what you can do with it. Um, but you're not allowed to reprint anything. Okay. So... Most of the first week was spent trying to put back together the opening shot because they'd cut it up into a thousand pieces and there were frames missing and, yeah, we couldn't find the pits. <clears throat> and they wouldn't help us, you know, yeah. just like you. Uh, so, you know, we did have a go at it, but it's a very cursory kind of impact that we had. Uh, we weren't able to explore a lot beyond what what had been put together and kind of make it work a bit better but um you know there's i have been asked at times whether i'd be interested in doing a recut which i'm probably too busy normally to do but uh, you know there's something interesting in seeing what was there and takes we didn't use and shots we didn't use you know i don't know well you certainly, you certainly from the opening shot you certainly salvaged something that was quite quite unique and from what i understand was quite advanced for the technology that was available to shoot yeah, no, yeah, it was very ambitious, but they partic took particular delight in destroying that and not letting it. They didn't want it, you know. It was like teaching a lesson: just cut the fuck off, you know, just cut really? it into little bits. Okay. Yeah, yeah. yeah. <clears throat> I was interested. I mean, just taking this 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 point of the kind of product, post production process further, then I was interested to read in the uh, that sort of quietest article from two thousand twelve. That's sort of quoted in the on your press release about the uh, U.S. test screens. Was that something you were involved with, and did you see how that helped shape? Yeah, yeah. The, how, what, did, what, did that, what, what did that tell you then, as filmmakers? Those test screens in America. Um, well, bizarrely, we had one in L.A. in Burbank, which I remember was at um, sunset. Yeah. And bizarrely, the the door out of the cinema was. Um, right beside the screen. So every time someone got up and left during the screening, this huge blast of sun kind of burst, you know, just blitzed the room. <laughs> so you were very aware how many people were leaving and it was marked with this explosion of light, you know. Mm. So it was it was quite traumatic. They all seemed to leave. Um, but that was Burbank. I mean, I did get a review in the in the LA Weekly saying this is the best film, you know, this guy's a bold class filmmaker, which was, which was nice. But, um, uh, yeah, I, I don't know. Burbank. 
I mean, so thinking thinking of sort of um, positive experiences in the, in the making from you as a filmmaker and what you were trying to achieve. Um, what 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 from what was on the page on the screenplay? Do you remember sort of considering with your heads of department was the sort of the, the sort of almost impossible to shoot and sort of how did you overcome that challenge? What what did you what were the breakthroughs you made as as a filmmaker? Do you feel with what you had? Well, initially we were trying to shoot it on the streets in London, and um, I think that was a big big shift uh, was to build these sets that were. Mm bigger than anything that had been built other than um, well since Hitchcock's sabotage apparently the outdoor set wow, was the biggest okay. and the Soho set was miraculous really they had a great production designer um, I had a great creative team of people um, and I had a very clear view of how I wanted it to look and the colour palette and oh and obviously I'd looked at a lot of uh, Hollywood technical movies um, you know and, and, and McInnes describes everything in Technicolor and it was the period of Technicolor 58 was still Technicolor so you know we put a lot of work into the visual graphic and set design mm. um, and the color palette of it what, what, what was your what was your own sort of direct input in terms of that set and production design, or was it just like you allowed your heads off to sort of get on with it, and they came back with answers for you? No, I was totally involved in all that aspect of it. I was obsessed with it, in fact. And we went a million over because of the sets. We didn't go over because we shot longer than we had scheduled or anything like that. It wasn't. Kind of, sense of these guys are out of control, don't know what they're doing. It was fun to already spent a million more to build those sets than we had. Um, and there was a big discussion, do we tell them or not? And the producers were saying to me, no, we, if we tell them, they'll cancel the film. So the whole thing was very pressurized because the producers had, had okayed the spend and um, knew it was going over. So it sounds, it sounds the, very pressurized and very political at the same time. Oh, yeah, there were stand-up fights between the financiers and one of the producers one night had a big slug out, you know. I mean, it was it was intense, man, I tell you. Yeah. I mean, Stephen Woolley in that documentary, he talks about, he still has sleepless, he, he jokes that he still has sleepless nights about it to this day. Well, that was that was the topper when we finished it. He did, a, when it came out, he, he got the front page of Time Out saying, my nightmare, absolute beginners. <clears throat> And I said, you know, what the fuck is that all about? And he was like in tears trying to apologize. You know, it was a very fraught, emotional. And, you know, and it did hang around my neck like a Technicolor albatross for 25 years. I couldn't get finance from the BFI. It's still very hard for me to do that, I think. Um, so, you know, it's, it's <clears throat> my main... Uh, well, I think if it had been really successful, I'd probably be floating upside down in some Hollywood jacuzzi long ago. But, um, <laughs> you know, the upside is it, it meant that it kept me hungry and um, keen to work and make up for lost time in, in a way. <clears throat> it's interesting. I mean, not interesting because it's, it's, it's your life, but just that you, you talk about the fact that when you'd finished working with the Pistols, 
you'd go to meetings at first and, and it was almost like that association was toxic and people were scared. And I think you used the expression that you were going to do a shit in their office or something. Um, yeah, that and, was, yeah. And it's, inter- it, it, it's, it's weird to think that you do this attempt where you're sort of embracing, well, you're being provocative. You're still embracing a sort of mainstream by bringing people like Bowie and all the pop stars that are involved to a film. And then mm-hmm. that ends up being, like you say, um, at the, in the, at the time, an albatross and something people sort of heavily criticized you for. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I remember, I remember I had to do an interview with Melvin Bragg. They did a program on it. Yeah. You know, the South Bank show. And, um, I just had this buzzing in my ear. It was like a bee was in my ear. I was, I was totally losing the plot at that point because they'd taken us off the film and I was having to do this interview talking about it and it was very, uh, very upsetting. <laughs> no, okay. I, I mean, are you, are, do you, do you, do you feel like the, the, the 30 years that passed have been been kind to the film. Do you, do, you, do you buy that theory that I said at the beginning? Well, I think more recently it, it has been begun to be reappraised. I still think it's a very flawed film, but I think at moments it achieves its ambition and is quite a dazzling uh, film, you know. Mm. Um, so I have, a, I have a bit of sweet feeling about it now um, because it poisoned a lot of my working career. Um, mm. I do, on the other hand, feel proud to have survived it. You know, I think it, it would have been quite easy to just ditch it in and try and find something easier to do. <clears throat> what, 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 was, what were some of the lessons learned then for you? That I mean, when you, when you said you went to the States, as it were, you're still a filmmaker then, so what were... What well, I got were... an offer of another musical almost straight away called Earth Girls Are Easy there. Right. But I, but I would not in a million years have got here wasn't able to work you know it was like this guy's on the blacklist you know yeah and actually people like David Putnam were calling Hollywood Studios saying don't work with him he's an anarchist you know um, which was nice of them yeah it's just kind of it's, it's it, I mean I think it's I, I imagine from my experience on my own little scant experience on film sets it'd be hard to be an anarchist and make a film at the same time it is it's easy to make a documentary with, with a band of band of brothers that you or sisters that you have a small crew uh you know the the army thing where they make you the king of this hierarchy uh is not something i find very easy Hmm. i think you know i I think you have to do it less so now because you can have smaller crews and have more more involvement with everyone on a more um, human kind of level. But, uh, yeah. yeah, that's been a problem for me, that having to work within an industry that has uh, certain sets of rules and ways of fixing people in, in a hierarchy. Yeah. I mean, it is like the army, um, isn't it, really, a film set in many senses? Yeah, yeah. And the pressure is intense when you've got an army of that size. Yeah. Uh, it's like throwing fibers onto a bonfire every five seconds or something, you know, so, uh, yeah, it's a, it's an interesting experience. Um, but, uh, what are you saying? What did I learn from it? Yeah. What would, what would be a lesson learned that you took into other films you've subsequently made? 
But well, certainly not to hype something before you've done it. I think we made huge mistakes doing that. Um, uh, I've learned. Uh, I've learned that you should start again on everything you do, as though you don't really know what you're doing. I think that's a good, a good philosophy mm. of making. Um, and, and, and it, it seems it would seem. I mean, obviously, from the film, you've got um, an iconic uh, title track, "Absolute Beginners" by David Bowie, yeah. who obviously passed passed away this year, um, and he stars yeah. he stars in the film as well. Um, yeah. From, I mean, you, you'd already done music video with him before, hadn't before you made "Absolute Beginners." Is that yeah. right? So you'd work yeah. with him yeah. on a where he's the one that's in control, as it were, I guess, because it's his video. How how do you approach? How did you approach directing someone like David Bowie? The directed David or someone like how do you how did you approach directing David Bowie where he's coming into your project as it were to be a member of the cast? Well, you know, the video we made together was a collaboration, and David was a fantastic person to collaborate with. He yeah. really liked to work like that. He wasn't like do this, do that. And in fact, that story came out of a lot of things I'd done with other videos where I. I had the main character play two roles. Mm. So one was more of a, a critique of the, the kind of mythic status of some of the guys I was working with. I did with Ray Davis and um, the Stones and so on before I did it with Bowie. But that idea of having a schizophrenic kind of version of the star mm. was particularly opposite with David because he obviously is a spectacular supernova kind of star but um when you meet him you're almost shocked how normal and um uh almost nerd like he could be you know uh spectacularly impressive about how he could transform something to another and i wanted to capture that and if you don't already subscribe to britflix just sign up for free at itunes and you'll get the next episode right after we launch it or follow at Britflix on Twitter for links to the podcast to stream from the website directly. Thank you. More, more generally speaking, as a, as a director, what, what's some of the first things you say to, to your cast when you're on set or even you know, pre-shoot? What, what are the, the important things for you, for your actors to understand? I think the main thing is to, to just relax, to, to, to kind of like each other and dig being in each other's presence, you know, it's mm. a, a fundamental thing, because um, that allows you then to share a kind of roadmap of where you're going, you know. I think that's the key, is to share where you're going with an actor, however you do that, and, and accept that they may have a better shortcut to get there, you know, or, I don't know, it depends on the actor and the, and the, and the performer, mm. um, you know, they're all very different, and I'm usually very... Uh, I think to film directing is all to do with confidence and if you lose that confidence you don't have anything and that does happen to me I don't know if it happens to other directors but that that can be a terrifying thing no, and I've, I've, had, I've had other directors talk about this on the podcast before it's, a, it's an important indication isn't it of how well a film is going that people see confidence in the director yeah, if, if you lose it, the whole thing goes down, really. And it can happen, particularly with the pressure, you know, to get to 
get the number of shots you need, you know. Um, so, yeah, so you want actors who can help you when you're feeling freaked out <laughs> as well as you helping them, you know. I don't know if you've ever read um, Devil's Candy, the story of Brian De Palma making Bonfire Vanities, which was, I mean... I have, a long time ago, yeah. You know, he yeah, referred yeah, to making... He, do you remember he, he referred to making a film as entering a tunnel you can't turn around and you've got to get to the end? Yeah. Which I, think is a, which I think is a brilliant analogy of making a film. It's like, you can't go back and not do it. You've got to get to the end. And no matter what you do, that's the film you get left with, isn't it? Yeah. Well, the important thing is, is in a way, is to concentrate what you can do and, and not freak out about what you can't do, um, which is hard to let go of things you want to do. But there's always going to be, you know, an adaption to the reality of the situation. And I, I think more films should be made in a freer way that you are able to you're not locked in stone what you're doing you can explore the moment that happens that you would never have written or expected and you can go with that and change mm. direction I, you know that's the kind of film which you can do on a documentary mm. but I, 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 it's harder to do yeah I, I heard I listened to uh, George Romero talk about this his only one studio pick was Land of the Dead and yeah. everything he shot was signed off by a committee. So when he was, like, on a boat going between places and he thought, hold on a minute, this is where I can do that scene. Contractually, yeah. he wasn't allowed to do it because it hadn't been signed off. So the moment was gone because he'd said, I'm yeah. going to film it on the island. And yet, yeah, creatively, yeah, yeah. he's going, oh, this would be fantastic. Yeah. Well, look, sure. Right, listen, I'm, I should probably go because I'm, I'm doing this Keith Richards Thing, and I've got a deadline that is insane, and we've got two editors. You beat, you beat me to the punch there. I was about to say thank you very much for your time, and and, uh, okay. and, and good luck with the 30th anniversary release of Absolute Beginners. Uh, you've been a star right, coming on to talk about it. All right, mate. Take well, care. It's nice talking to you, too. Indeed. Take care. Take bye care. Bye bye. Yeah. Cheers, man. Bye. If you don't already subscribe to Britflix, just sign up for free at iTunes, and you'll get the next episode right after we launch it. Or follow at Britflix on Twitter for links to the podcast to stream from the website directly. Thank you. What's so special about Hero Bread's soft, fluffy, and delicious breads, buns, and tortillas? These ultra-low-net-carb baked goods contain zero sugar, fewer calories, and more protein than the leading brands, and are high in fiber to support gut health. Shop now at Hero.co.